0: you'd have your Bibles in turn with me to Exodus chapter 2, did I see Trey back there? Didn't see, expect to see you here today, good to have you, good to see you after uh, we had prayed much for Catherine and the Lord was gracious this week to add another one to the fold here. In Exodus, uh, as before we get into that, I was just noticing as we were reading Psalm, or singing Psalm 45, and you read about the tapestry that went into the bridal uh, clothing and interwoven even with the, the golden thread, and it brought me back to uh, a place of Exodus that we'll be coming to when there was the, the tapestry in the tabernacle. And even the priestly clothes and the woven golden thread that goes into those matters as well. And when we consider the tabernacle with all of its fine tapestry and its beautiful place, it was the place in which God dwelt and where he would meet with his people. And here we have in the same kind of language the the garments that the bride herself wears. And we're having a figure in Psalm 45 of the bride of Christ. And it is the bride of Christ, united together with the groom, that becomes the new tabernacle, the new temple in which God dwells and in which we come to meet with the Lord. And that's where we are here this morning. So as we sing together these psalms reflecting upon that in the fulfillment of Christ, and as we think through the entire study together through the book of Exodus, it will have a lot of object lessons for us to, to note and to follow. Here we have before us the early years of Moses, and we're going to cover about 40 years of his life, um, uh, and actually maybe almost 80 uh, here in one chapter. So now let's hear the word of the Lord as I read the chapter 2 of Exodus. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child... She hid him three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, "'Why are you striking your companion?' Then he said, "'Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian?' So Moses feared and said, "'Surely this thing is known.'" When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water, and they filled their troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And so he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Sapporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word which instructs us in all the matters of life and godliness. And as we consider this life of Moses, we ask that you would open up our hearts that we might be attentive to the lessons that the Spirit would have for us this day as we follow in his faith. We pray that you would apply the truths of the word to us individually and as a church corporately. And we pray that you would bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've just come on the heels of, and I didn't read it. Perhaps I should have gone back and caught the previous context where Pharaoh had instructed um, for all of the male children of the of the Hebrews to be killed. He was fearful that the the nation or the Hebrews were growing too large and powerful and so he did not, he wanted to control the population and suppress those which would grow to be warriors and therefore the, the male children were commanded. When the Hebrew midwives did not take heed to that, then he told the Egyptians to throw the male Hebrew babies into the Nile River. And I think that's important to capture in the context of what's going on here. The story here begins with Moses. It's one of the only characters in the Bible that we are able to trace from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. And here, in a very brief chapter, we have an overview of the first 80 years of that life. And in his story, we see the faith of his parents, we see his family coming around even in this providence of God. And we see God's providence working and directing not only the family, but the occasion, even the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. We see also Moses' own faith and his gifting and development as the man and the calling that he would then become in the providence and timing of the Lord to lead the people of the Hebrews out of Egypt. And while Moses would become a very significant leader in Israel, the principles that are going on in this chapter, in his development, is is a pattern even that we see throughout all of, uh, of our lives, even as covenant people of God. There are places along the cycle for us to grab hold to the application in terms of our ministry. God has a ministry for each one of us in the church of Jesus Christ. And you are somewhat, somewhere in this cycle. Everyone has a responsibility. Now the family of Moses was all a part of this in his life, even in his delivery. This is a covenant and a covenant relationship. And he had an identity with the covenant that God had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob many, many centuries before. And so while this covenant had been established with Abraham almost 400 or over 400 years ago, uh, we, we now have a first installment, if you will, in a way that as God had promised his posterity would be in bondage of Egypt, then God would bring them out and give the very land that he had promised to Abraham. What we have in Exodus is a picture that's going to go on that is applicable for us, Uh, a picture that we can see. It's really God's flannel graph, or or that that would be my age. (laughs) Object lesson, uh, PowerPoint, that's what it is. It's, It's the visual that we get to see in the picture lesson of his instruction. And there's a lot of pictures for us to understand who we are. Who Christ is, what He's done for us, and how we find our life hidden together with Him in God. As we see the family of Moses, Moses' his father was a man by the name of Amram. His mother was the name of Jochebed. We find this in other passages of Scripture. Miriam was the oldest, she was a daughter. Uh, and then later, we find Aaron was born sometime later. We don't know how old Miriam was when Aaron was born, but we do know that Aaron was three years older than Moses. Now, as we see this picture unfold before us in Exodus 2, Miriam was going to be very instrumental in terms of facilitating this this. Um, particular occasion down on the riverbank with Pharaoh's daughter and her infant brother, Moses, of three months old by this time. That would tell me that she's got a few bit of years on her. I don't know, nine, ten, twelve? I, I was thinking last night as I was thinking through some of our young people here, there's a certain level of poise and maturity that she had on the riverbank that day with Pharaoh's daughter, and, and yet I, I see uh, some of that in some of our young people as well. And so I don't know how old she was, but she carried herself well, much like a lot of our kids here do. In the verses 1 through 10, we see now the beginning of Moses' formative years. This is his birth all the way through the time in which he was being formed as um, who he would become. And the focus here on verses 1 through 10 in these formative years is really upon his parents. And it's upon the faith of his parents and the providence of God and how the faith of his parents and the providence of God works together just like it does with us today in the covenant. And remember that we are in a covenant relationship where the faith of parents plays a very important role in the faith of the children. Let's consider the faith of the parents here. Both Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, acted in great faith toward their son to the extent that they have their reference there in Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall mark of faith. As we read earlier, as you meditated on that, it says, "...by faith," in Hebrews 11.23, "...by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents." That was not by faith, Moses' faith. That was by the parents' faith. They acted to hide Moses for three months, and then they acted according to God's will and providence to then deliver him through this unusual manner. And it says, because they saw a beautiful child... They were not afraid of the king's command. It was interesting when you read how they think about their child. They saw a beautiful child. Dude, not all parents look at their children and say, that's a beautiful child. But in Acts chapter 7, it says that God saw Moses and he saw a beautiful child. And that's how he sees all of his covenant children, as beautiful children. And it says here now, not fearing the king's command, they hid Moses for three months and they, like the midwives, would then disobey the explicit command of Pharaoh to kill these male infant children. And there's some lesson here for us. Now, civil authorities are to be defied when their decrees come contrary to the explicit will of God. The Word of God requires us to obey the laws of the land in which we live. It even exhorts us in Romans chapter 13 to be subject to the powers to be. And this is incumbent on us whether those laws are are wise or just or even if they are unwise and unjust like so many of them are. Yet our submission and our obedience to human authorities is plainly qualified in the Scripture. If human government enacts a law and compliance with it by a saint would compel him then to disobey some command or precept of God, then human law must be disobeyed in, instead for God's law to be obeyed. And the case here for Moses' parents they were commanded, in a sense, to to kill their son, Moses. And they would have to obey God rather than murder their own child. The case for Daniel, where the king issued a decree uh, that, that no one would call upon or could petition or pray to any god or man for 30 days except to the king himself, Daniel had to disobey that particular command because God bids us to pray and petition him. In Acts 4, when the authorities forbade Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore, they said, We cannot obey men but only God, who has given us orders explicitly to preach in the name of Jesus. And in all these cases, man's law were, uh, was expressly against the clear command of Scripture. And so they must be disobeyed in order to obey God. Now when Moses was getting too lively and probably a little loud uh, to be contained any longer, they, at three months old, they had to do something different. And so his parents put him in the river. And that's exactly what the king commanded in Exodus one twenty-two. So Pharaoh commanded all the people saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, but every daughter you shall save alive. I think that's interesting how the very command of Pharaoh was telling uh, the Hebrews and the Egyptians alike to take the male Hebrew infants and cast them into the river to drown them. And so where did his parents, in faith, take Moses? They took him and put him at the place of death. Faith of the parents then led Moses to do the very last thing that human reason would have suggested. Moses was taken to the place of death. The river where babies were drowned. But there at the river, and especially in Egypt, there was additional dangers. There were the currents of the Nile that could loosen the little basket and carry it downstream. And there were crocodiles. We don't think about that, do we? And there were Egyptians who also had the command of their king. So they took him down to the river, down to the water, and they put him in the water. Water has interesting characteristics depicted in the Bible. We talked a little bit about this this past Tuesday. The waters throughout the scripture, they they are a realm of untamed chaos. For sailors, the sea has an unpredictable nature and is both frightening and dangerous. Water is identified in the Bible with judgment. The flood in which Noah himself escaped God's judgment in an ark. Which, by the way, is the same word that is used for this bulrush basket. Often the same waters of judgment were those through which God delivered His people. We're going to see later that happens at the Red Sea crossing. Water is also a symbol of life. Water is used for cleansing and for for washing. And all of these come together in that beautiful symbol that we know of as baptism. And that's why sometimes symbols carry with it so much meaning that is packed into a complex, simple symbol that to unpack it begins to unfold the many facets of what is contained in that symbol. Now, though Moses was brought to the place of death, he, he was secure in an ark that Jochebed had built for him and laid him in the water. And the ark speaks to us of Christ. We are safe from death and its dangers when we are placed into Christ. And it is that faith of his parents that placed him there. Now when his mom put Moses in the ark and left him on the riverbanks of the Nile, giving instruction to Miriam to look over this, she really did not know what the details we're going to follow. She had to trust God's providence as she had trusted him up to this point. But now she's out of control. For the first time in three months she doesn't have her hands on little Moses. She's not going to be near him. She can't control the situation and and the faith that led her thus far, as the hymn writer would say, would would be that faith that would lead her on as she trusted God to take care of all the details that would then remain. And so often in life, we must trust the Lord with the details that we don't have or with those areas that we don't have any control over whatsoever. But how frightening it would have been for for Amram and Jochebed to take little Moses and put him in the the river bank of the Nile with crocodiles and Egyptians and not really knowing how that situation is going to turn out. And yet God was faithful to those who trust him. I'm reminded here as I look even further in this passage that Moses' faith And his covenant identity with his God and with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the whole package can be attributed to his parents' faith. And that's the way that this covenant works with parents. Moses was nursed and then he was taken at some young age to be Pharaoh's daughter. And it says in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's sermon, reflecting back on this time, it says, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deeds. Moses was cultivated in the house of Pharaoh. He was Cultivated in the high learning of the Egyptians. He was schooled and raised in this particular sphere of life. But he had spent enough time with his faithful parents to be catechized well in Yahweh's covenant with Abraham. When he left Goshen to live in Pharaoh's palace, he clearly knew that he was a Hebrew. He clearly knew he was not an Egyptian. He knew his identity was with Abraham and Abraham's God. And it was very clear. And parents, I want to speak to all of us here today. We have to be diligent and catechizing our children and teaching them the Word of God and and pointing them to our God and to Christ while we still have time. And we must do this deeply and not on a shallow level so that they will clearly understand who they are. And their identity with Christ and their identity in his church and with his people. Over the last several years, there's kind of this new trend, I guess you could say. It's at least the the terminology, deconstructing faith movement. It's a movement largely in evangelical circles, in in our circles, in conservative circles. It's been defined by some of its outspoken proponents as, quote, the process of reexamining the faith that you were brought up with and systematically dissecting and often rejecting those very beliefs. I think back in two thousand. 22. It was two years ago, the hashtag deconstructing had somewhere around 290,000 um, links to it. In January of 2024, that number was well into the 400,000s. Now that would be coming from... Children mostly growing up in evangelical churches and who are dissecting their faith and, and deconstructing it, and, and a lot of times walking away from it and proud about it, and then social media tagging that. And so the numbers are growing. It's often related to some moral or social issue within the church some kind of cultural application in the church, such as critical race theory or the LGBT uh, movement or racism. Um, But it's not limited to that. We see young people growing up in our circles that recoil against patriarchy or against Calvinism or against headship principles. And we see people leaving the faith over it. And the problem is not the application of those things that I just mentioned. It is that these people in their deconstruction of their faith, they grow up in a church and sometimes a very good church and sound not only in theology, but are trying to put these things into practice. The problem is not with the church. The problem is with the children who never knew God to begin with. And they have no sense of their identity with God or the Christian church or their people as Moses did with his Hebrew brethren. One of the most significant reasons I believe that this is happening in many churches and many youth today is because I don't believe that the parents' theology matches up with their lifestyle. I think there's such a disconnect with what they say they believe and yet how they live their lives. And the children grow up hearing that we ought to be holy people and yet the parents are not living holy lives. Or the children hear we're supposed to be loving but the parents are very unloving. Or the children are hearing that it's the grace of God and the parents go about uh, rebuffing that with a a performance, duty-bound, exacting it out of their kids with a harsh hand. Whatever the differences are, there's a dissonance in many families as they raise up their children in the faith, doctrinally, but not by example in their own lives. And what they say that they believe is it consistent with that gospel life and how it's being lived out. And children grow up in this dissonant environment and it gives them no sense for what is real or what is true, no conviction for biblical truth because their parents don't exhibit a conviction of that biblical truth by their lives. And so therefore the kids grow up with no identity It's important for children's faith that their parents and their church are consistently living out the doctrines that they say they believe. Amram and Jochebed were faithful and brought Moses up well, which we shall now see. As we turn to the next section in verses 11 through 15, we now see Moses' young adulthood. And in his adulthood, we see in this section Moses' own personal faith demonstrated by his identity with God's people. In this particular section now, we, this is that little incident where he goes out and he sees his brethren Fellow Hebrews being abused by a harsh Egyptian taskmaster. Now at this time, in this section of the scripture, Moses has grown up and he's 40 years old now. And we know this because we know that Moses was 40 when he left Egypt and departed from there in flight from Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And it says in verse 11 that he went out and he saw his brethren, a Hebrew being abused by an Egyptian and Moses rose up and he looked this way and that to see no one was watching and he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And while Moses was learned in the ways of Egypt, had grown up in the house of Pharaoh, had been cultivated in all the refineries. His heart was never there. There's an important commentary that brings us back to that passage that we reflected upon in Hebrews 11. And it says there in verse 24 of Hebrews 24 through 26, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, now this is his faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. I'd like to pull out four particular points that I think are notable from that Hebrew passage that helps explain and give commentary what's going on here in Exodus chapter 2. First of all, Moses renounces his Egyptian identity for that of the Hebrews. It says in verse 24, he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. He renounces that Egyptian background and upbringing. His parents had done well. Number two, Moses chose rather to suffer with the Hebrews than to enjoy the pleasures of the Egyptians. In verse 25 it says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than the passing pleasures of sin with the Egyptians implied. We might later recall on the journey of which he would lead the people out that the Hebrews themselves began complaining Remember what they were complaining about? They were complaining because they did not have the the leeks and the garlics and the, the, the niceties that they had back in Egypt. And they wanted to return to go back. And here Moses had all that he could want and even more and all those pleasures and he denounced them all. And that's why the very nature of Moses renunciation of those very pleasures made him fit to be their leader. Number three, Moses, by faith, esteemed the reproach of Christ as a prize far greater than all the treasures in Egypt. Esteeming the reproach of Christ This is very similar to sounding to the Apostle Paul, is it not? When the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I have suffered the loss of all things, all of my background, all of my bringing up as a Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews, and of a Pharisee, and of the law, and and all of this. All of these things that I thought were worthy. He says, now I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's the same thing that's being spoken of about Moses. And what is true for Moses and what is true for Paul is also true for us. It must be. We must see Christ as the greatest treasure to gain that we might forsake all else in order to gain Him. It is like selling everything you have to buy the one pearl of great price. And Christ is everything. You should be able to walk away from everything at a moment's notice for the sake of Christ because therein is the great reward. And number four, Moses looked beyond this particular world and this present world. He looked beyond Egypt and all that it could offer and he saw the glorious reward in the future and so he could sacrifice on the present All those pleasures for the sake of the glorious future that he knew awaited him. It says in verse 26, he looked for the reward. And Moses by faith could see the shallowness and the fleeting transitoriness of the pleasures of this world and renounce all those temporal things and even choose a path of suffering for the glorious reward that would come in the future by the gift of God. And so he, with all those things, he kills an Egyptian. And then the next day he he goes out and he sees two Hebrews fighting and he confronts them. He says, why are you doing wrong to your brother? And the one Hebrew who was doing the wrong says, Who made you a prince and judge over us? You intend to kill me like you killed the Egyptians? So Moses then realized that he had been seen and knew what had happened. And he says, Surely this thing is known. Well, the answer to the man's question was God. God had made Moses a prince and a judge over us. His people. These two men simply didn't know it at the time. They would come to know it later, or perhaps their children would. But Moses was already exhibiting the gifts that God had given him to lead the people of Israel out. But yet Moses did not have the character at that time. Moses had gotten out ahead of God. He had taken matters into his own hands and by his own flesh he would then do that which God would later require of him in the spirit. But rather than with Moses' strength, God would lead his people out with God's own strength and it would take another 40 years to develop the character in Moses to be trained to yield to God so that God could work through him And Moses was simply going to have to yield. The Bible would later describe Moses in that section that we read in our Old Testament passage this morning that he was the most meek man that ever lived upon the face of the world. But not not then he wasn't. That meekness took forty years of wilderness training to develop in him, to ready and prepare him for his ministry. When we find him in the next chapter, 40 years later, we find a different Moses. One who was not confident in all of his abilities. But that is the kind of person that God wanted. And that is the kind of person that God will use. Because his cover was blown, now Pharaoh sought to kill him. And so Moses fled for his life. And it says in Hebrews eleven twenty seven 27, again a, a commentary. It says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, or he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And then the last section of this chapter, we find Moses' maturation, his maturing in adulthood. He leaves Egypt when he is 40, And he will return to Egypt when he is 80. In this next season of life, he is going to be spending 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. He was 40 years when he left Egypt. He spent 40 more years in the wilderness. He was 80 when he returned to Egypt to lead the people out. And he was 120 when he died. He trained for two-thirds of his life for the one-third of his life's ministry. Again, we see in Moses some of these strengths and gifts early on that God would then use, that God had given him, but they were not yet refined. But we see these gifts nonetheless as even tokens that he had along the way to remind him when God would finally call him that, no, you are the man he comes uh, then to a well and there we see in this picture at the last portion Rule or Jethro his seven daughters are coming out with the sheep to feed the flock and they draw water for their sheep and the troughs and then the shepherds come and drive away the shepherdesses and end up watering their flocks by it. And Moses would have none of that. And so Moses stood up against these unkind and selfish, somewhat rogue shepherds and drove them away in order to draw more water for the flocks of Rule's daughters and showed kindness to them, again, in in a leadership way here that gained him the audience of Rule, or Jethro, the priest of Midian. At some point along this journey between 40 and 80, then, then Jethro was given Zipporah as a wife and they had a son and, Je- and Moses named him Gershom. The word Gershom means, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And perhaps Moses was somewhat, um, some commentators even said depressed. I mean, after all, he was, he was taken away from his parents and family at a young age, grew up in the Pharaoh's house, taken away from the very people that he identified with, with scorn after them. And here he has no land, no place, no family, no people, except now he identifies with a foreigner and his family. So he names his firstborn son Gershon. But God wasn't yet finished with Moses. In fact, Moses' life ministry was about to take off. And it says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. God has in his attributes a characteristic of of great mercy. We see throughout the Bible that he, he favors the, in a very special way the fatherless, the widow, the poor and the oppressed, the weak and the helpless. And when we find ourselves identifying with that because of our own sins, we can cry out to God in our groanings. It comes up and he hears And he remembers his covenant, as it says in the next verse. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. Verse 23 says, In the process of time, that means 40 years have now passed. And we know that because we know how old Moses was when he went back to Egypt. And we're going to see that calling in the next chapter. But by this time the wilderness training had done its work and God had sanctified Moses into a much more mild man. His character had mellowed, he had softened, the jagged edges were rounded off. And God himself would testify of Moses, there is not another man like Moses in meekness. Well, that took 40 years. That didn't just come. He wasn't just born with that. But now God would use this mild but strong leader. Meekness has often been related to a weakness, but meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. It's a softness and a roundedness and a mildness. If we look at the direction of sanctification in all of our lives, we can see the contrast in Galatians 5 between the deeds of the flesh in which we are all born in, harsh anger, wrath. And we see a trajectory from there toward the fruit of the Spirit. And the more we grow in our sanctification, the more mild we become. The more we grow in grace, the the more gentle we become, the more loving we become. The more joyful, the more at peace, the more in self-control, the greater the kindness See, the fruit of the Spirit is that which God brings out in us, but it is not something that flourishes at perfection. It is something of which God then continues to grow for the rest of our journey. And the more we grow in grace, the milder, less harsh with people we become. And that's what we see in Moses. We see a different character with all those gifts now developed that God would use him. And now God would take this mild man and use him to display God's tremendous power and glory over Egypt and that all of the nations would then hear. It was time for Moses to go back and be reunited with his family and with his old friends and his people, the Hebrews, to lead them out of Egypt. God had heard their groanings. And Pharaoh, who sought Moses' life, was now dead. God remembered his covenant. He acknowledged his people. And God was now ready to act in the fullness of time. Now it was time. And it was God's time and God's way to do what God had already promised that he was going to do. Now as we think about some of the lessons for us here... We all have a purpose in life. Every one of us in Christ church has a has a particular ministry, a, a very unique purpose that he has put in the body. And we're somewhere on this cycle of preparation or already into the ministry. First of all, Christian parents must be aware of the utter essential imperative of nurturing their children's faith from the very earliest of years. This is not to be taken lightly. This is not to be presumed upon. This is not merely to leave the church to do. This is your responsibility because you do not know how long you will have them. Covenant nurture is the means that God uses to grant the gift of faith to your children. And if you neglect that means, you cannot expect or presume upon God for that outcome. That's why at every baptism we, we covenant together to help the parents. We covenant together to help this child. It is something that we must take seriously by faith. But the gifts and the calling are God's. The graces are to be attributed to him. And each one of us will prepare for what he has desired for us to do. And there will be in your life and in your preparation, in your ministry, there will be ministry training in wildernesses. Paul, Jesus, Moses, Joseph. Daniel, and all of you. There's going to be wilderness training that only God can do. And that's going to be to develop your character. And it's going to be to soften that harshness and to bring you into a greater mildness. For Joseph... That training in Egypt was 13 years, in Potiphar's house down in the dungeon, but that training was necessary. For Moses, it was 40 years. But God's gift and calling and his training, including the wilderness training, is that which he uses in our lives to bring us into a greater joy. And then third, in God's time, when the fruit of that training has borne out and the character can be used, then God opens up doors of opportunity. And in some cases, like Moses, he will call us quite in an unexpected way and even against what we were thinking at the time. We're going to see that resistance even in the next chapter as God calls Moses and Moses isn't ready to go. And oftentimes we often stumble into the ministry that God has for us by God's providence, and it's not always something that we know about. It's not always something we're pursuing, but sometimes God just drops it in our lap or or leads us in providence in a way that we would have never planned or organized ourselves. But the key is to be faithful in the little things in life. When you're faithful in the little things in the mundane things, in the day-in and day-out things, then God will lead us where He wants us to go. God will open up. He will equip us. He will gift us. He will call us. And what is true for Moses was true for me when I left to go to seminary. It's true for every one of you who may or may not go to seminary. But it's true what God says in 1 Thessalonians 5 when He says, Faithful is He who calleth you, who will also do it. And what God calls, he equips. And every one of you he has called and he is equipped. And so we need our training and we need to roll our sleeves up and serve God where he wants us to serve. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we consider this man that you have preserved from the very beginning of his life, trained in unusual circumstances for a very unique ministry the likes of which he would not even come to understand until he went to glory and he looks down upon it all now. We also pray, Lord, that you would take each one of us and mold us and shape us into the image of Christ that we as parents can teach our children of the things of Christ, not only in indoctrinating them with the truth of the word, but to live it out as examples before their eyes. That our kids can see moms and dads who live lives that are repentant lives, humble lives, seeking each other's forgiveness when. We sin against one another. That our children can see what the example of that looks like. That our children can see that we're not perfect, nor do we claim to be, but we have a Savior who forgives us. And so may our example in the home be lived out, that they may grow up not with a superficial faith, but with a vital faith in a forgiving Christ, a loving Christ, a powerful Christ. And may our children come to know their identity with that Christ from a very early age and their identity with His people. And may they forsake all of the pleasures of the world for even the suffering path that they would identify with the church. And they would seek that reward that is before them in glory and so Put all of the things of this world behind and seek those things which are above. Lord, we pray this for all of our children. And Lord, take and shape each one into the ministry that you've called them to, that they would be diligent in serving you in the small things of life, in the mundane things, the day in and day out. And may they not neglect their holy character. And all of us in our journey, no matter where we are, Lord, we ask that you would continue to soften the rough edges and make us mild and gentle and loving and kind. Grow us in all of your characteristics, putting off the old man by putting on the new, that we might testify of your glory. And you're working in our lives to the blessing of Christ and to his glory and to the advancement of his kingdom here on this earth. We pray this in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.